If you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage again, Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 28. And Jesus makes an interesting statement. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate or count the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask as we uh, look to your word this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to connect the essential dots in our own hearts and minds that help us to have a, a holistic understanding of the place that money plays in our lives and how it interacts with our relationship with you, Lord. We, we want wisdom from above, Father, in, in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> God and budgets is not exactly the most attractive uh, way of titling this message, but I would point out that I use the word budgets in the plural, not budget in singular, because every one of us spends a great deal of time budgeting our life. We budget our time, we budget our energy, and we also budget our money. I mean, I'm thinking this morning that if I don't wake up someplace between 5.30 and 6 on a Sunday morning, I'm never going to get everything I need to get done to get here by 8. I mean, I just, so I have to actually plan this out. My wife will tell you, you know, I'm doing everything that I can prepare on Saturday night to be ready so I can leap out of bed, which for me usually is more like a roll and a crawl across the floor, um, but nonetheless to, to be able to fit everything into the day. And you do that all the time with your schedules. You sit there and budget out the time that you have to make sure that you can cover all of your obligations. We do that with our energy. We realize that there are some things that I need to really exert myself and spend my energy on, and there's other things that uh, if I do that, I'm going to be operating under a physical deficit. So I manage and budget out those things, which is kind of interesting because we can be really good in those areas of our life, but when it comes to our monies, it kind of eludes many people that they need to be thinking in those same terms. That essentially, when we look at life, there is a limited amount of resources available to us, and in order for us to be able to reach from point A to point B, we have to basically allocate those in a way that enables us to complete whatever challenge or task we're facing. That's what budgeting really comes down to. And the reason why the area of money is so important is not simply because there are some 2,000 different passages that talk about money, not just giving money, but the idea of, of how we manage and handle and, and how it relates to our life. But it puts this huge emphasis upon it because it is so central to the practical living out of our life. I mean, think just very briefly, I don't want to lose you for the rest of the day, but think for a moment just how connected your life is to money. As much as we like to say, well, money's no big deal, and I don't think about money, and money doesn't control my thinking, you know, 
I just say if you're going to lie about that, you're going to lie about a lot of things. Because the truth of the matter is, it does affect you in so many things. How many times do we look at the price of gasoline or we say, is this on sale? Is it my budget? We basically carry them off of money issues all day long in a, in a hundred different ways. And there are none of us, even the wealthiest amongst us, who can simply say, well, I don't have to think about money anymore. It's just not true. We have to think about money because it affects our lives in a wide variety of ways. <clears throat> but why I want to talk about budgets is because this particular ask about money probably is the primary cause of more human hardship and suffering than many of us even want to think about. We know the passage. We've referred to it. You know, 1 Timothy 6.10, where Paul makes that warning, loving money leads to all kinds of evil. And the word loving there, it actually means a, literally a love of silver, but the word he uses, the philia, root word there, means to have a fond affection for it. You know, it, it's Gollum in Lord of the Rings, my precious. You know, it's that idea that we have this thing that we're kind of attached to that, that makes us feel better. And, and I'm like you. If I open my wallet and it's empty, I, I have one emotion. If I open my wallet and it's full, then I have a different emotion. And you, you know that your stuff, you shouldn't be that way. And you may want to pretend in your conversation with other people in this room that, well, I'm not moved by those things. But again, <clears throat> I'll forgive you for being untruthful about that as well. Because there's a certain affection that we develop for money and for a very basic reason. Because in our mind, oftentimes, it opens or means certain doors will remain closed in our life, whether it be the ability to buy a home or the ability to buy that uh, vanilla fudge pumpkin latte uh, on the way to work. I mean, those kind of things affect us. But James takes it a little bit deeper. When he talks about it, he says, what it does is he says it causes fights and quarrels among you. Anybody who's married knows this really well. You spent how much for what? <laughs> I mean, it causes fights and quarrels. Sometimes you kill and you covet and you quarrel and you fight because he says you do not have because you do not ask God. So James says this is part of the reality of it, that how many conflicts? And he says, in fact, he says, where do wars come from? Despite all the idea of ideology and principle, nobody goes to war except they feel like there's some kind of financial benefit, material benefit to them conquering somebody else and plundering their goods. That lies behind all the motivations. And the only time you could say that you have a pure motivation is when you do what you do to defend yourself against such people. But you see, every one of us, even on a smaller way, has felt the negative touch of financial stress. In fact, we're, in America, it's, it's, psychologists tell us it's the number one stress causer. The number one cause of depression is the issue of money, not having enough of it. Because we as a culture tend to derive our sense of significance, my worth, my value, by how much I have or don't have, our sense of safety and security, all these things culturally are related to how we feel about money, the absence or the abundance of it. 
and how safe we feel. So that when people don't feel financially secure, it creates a stress that often produces a depression. And again, I think every one of us, if we're honest, can say, yeah, been there, been there. When you're facing an obligation, you may be in your home, it may be in your business, and you're looking at the future and saying, I'm not sure how we're going to get from A to B. The stress that that creates often leads to depression. That further, we find that it affects our physical health. We know there's a relationship between the mind and the body. Physical and physiological changes take place as people go through those same kind of stressors. And again, the American Psychological Association says that Money issues is one of the preemptors of that, or I should say, excuse me, the, the things that predicts that, that if you're having financial stress in your life, it's going to affect you physically as well. But even more to home is the issue of relationships. It is the most common reason for divorce in America. Psychologists say, or therapists and counselors say, when a couple comes in, one of the first issues they hit on is money and the stress that that's creating in their relationship. But fourthly, and maybe most importantly to you and I, it has a profound effect upon us spiritually. I mean, Jesus put it this way in Matthew 13. He said, the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it and make it unfruitful. The worries of this life, in other words, Jesus talked about that in Matthew 7, we worry about what we're going to wear, what we're going to eat, we might add things like where we're going to live and all the other things, how am I going to cover these medical costs and all the rest that come in people's lives. We worry, those create anxiety and stress. And he said, secondly, the deceitfulness of riches, he couples those together because the deceit behind money is the idea that somehow money is the solution to the problem. And that's really what kind of tricks us into becoming money idolaters because we really believe that if I just had enough money, I could fix this problem. And how many times on our knees we've been saying, God, just give me more money because I need to have money. I remember years ago we had one of our children had a, had a heavy medical bill and, and uh, when I... When the insurance company first told me that they were going to cover it, and I thought, that's great. And then somehow they came back and said, oh, well, we discovered it wasn't covered. And it was only $12,000, and, you know, just about all I made in a year. And I'm, I'm just looking at this going, you're, what? <laughs> You've changed your mind? It's an interesting story. But I remember driving to work, and I said, God, the only way I can handle this bill is to, uh, you know, set up payments to the hospital and and pay it off, and based upon my income, God, the only money I have to give them is your tithe. So if you want your tithe, you better pay off this bill. I'm serious. This was a conversation we had. <laughs> and I just, I mean, it was, I, it was the only place I knew to go, and it was really interesting because a friend directed me a lawyer. A lawyer sent them this letter, and my wife and I prayed earnestly, and they wrote back and said, uh, well, we've decided to cover the bill because we did promise and didn't and so forth. You know, blah, blah. Anyway, fiduciary estoppel principle, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, thank you, Jesus. And the lawyer, who was not a Christian, said to me, wow, I don't know what it was about that letter, but I'm going to keep that as a copy and use it in the future because it was really effective. They responded so fast. I said, it wasn't your letter, it was prayer. But anyway, I digress. 
But the simple thing is that we fall into that deceit of riches. We come to believe that, that money is the answer. And we live in a culture that reinforces that. And so our first recourse often is, how can I get the money I need to relieve the stress that's coming into my life? Well, <clears throat> I can go over that in a number of different directions. But in a way, it explains why the Bible's filled with warnings about money. Like, for example, in Proverbs 23, when Solomon said, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. So that here's a principle that many times we overlook. You shouldn't be working to generate money. You should be working to fulfill what God has given you to do. And His promise is the money will come. The money will come. We shouldn't be making career choices or employment choices simply based upon how much will somebody pay me. But it should be rather about, is this what God has for my life? And trusting that He's going to make up the difference. Now, I know for some of you thinking, that's totally whacked, and I'm not listening to that anymore. But you see, an equal error that we can make is to assume that God's plan is to keep us in a state of financial disorder and disarray, or even that God is most pleased with us when we're in poverty. And there has developed in this church a poverty mentality going all the way back to the Middle Ages when people like Augustine and Benedict and all these other guys separated themselves and lived monastically and deprived themselves and took upon themselves vows of poverty and all of the rest. Now, I'm not going to judge you if you take on a vow of poverty, but don't judge me because I'm not going to. You see, because somehow there's an assumption that the, the more impoverished we are, the more spiritual we are. The truth of the matter is, sin in our nature is so pernicious, it will find itself a way to express itself even in your poverty. If you ever read any of the writings of some of the uh, Syrian monks who lived in caves, slept on uh, rotted hay and ate gruel in their, and flagellated themselves, and they write honestly about their journey, one of the things they, they bring out is that sin was with them, that lust was still there. And they were chagrined because that kind of self-abnegation or attacking the flesh doesn't touch the thing that is the real problem in mankind, and that is my sin nature. That's why Paul would make statements saying, you know, I learned how to be content in either condition. I know, he says, I know how to be content when I have nothing, and I know how to be content when I have everything. Now, I know some of you, you're so cynical, you're going, yeah, it's easy to be content when you have plenty, but what about when you have nothing? And I would agree, it's, it's harder to see God through certain circumstances and dynamics, not because God is hiding, but because in our own minds, we are not willing to find God in whatever condition we find ourselves in. But saying all of that, we make this mistake of assuming that it's always God's will to have me come up a day late and a dollar short. And that's simply not true. That's simply not the way that God often works. Because what we need to understand, I kind of lay a little bit of a foundation theologically here, if you don't mind, is we need to begin to realize that we serve a God who is an orderly God. In fact, when he says in 1 Corinthians 14, in verses 33 and 40, again, he says, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 
And then it goes on to say in verse 40, hence everything should be done fittingly in an orderly way. Everything should be done so that even when I'm talking about how I handle the monies that God enables me to have, I need to do that in an orderly and a fitting way. To me, that bespeaks of the idea that I know what my inflow is and I know what my outflow is and I'm operating within the context of that money, those monies. Because what we find about God is from the very beginning, He steps into chaotic and disordered situations and what does He turn them into? He turns them into orderly things. I mean, if we start at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, it says the earth was empty and a formless mass cloaked in darkness. Uh, or as another translation put it, a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. Mm. Sounds like my mind sometimes. But this is the case. Basically, God creates a world that by all extents is lifeless and somewhat chaotic, and He brings into it order. And it says, but then the Spirit of God was hovering over its surface, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. You see, my whole point is that you may be in a place right now where your financial situation feels to you like it is a soup of nothingness and and, and, an empty, bottomless pit full of inky blackness. Or you may have other 50 shades of gray, but I don't know. But you look at your situation and say, I just am so discouraged. And what I really believe is that the God that we follow, the God we serve, is a God who loves to come and hover over our problems and speak light and truth and life into those things so that we can be people who enjoy the freedom and the blessing of God in our life and not living under a cloud of oppression and depression and stress. I do not believe, and I think Scripture is fortified, God is not wanting you to live a stress-filled life because you're anxious about how you're going to pay next week's bills. And I think He wants to do the same thing in every area of our lives, including our personal finances. But there requires, I think, biblically, three basic things that we have to embrace as truths about God. And those truths are expressed, I think, most clearly in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. I put it up on the board there for those of you who have a aversion to reading. But he says three very simple things in that passage. He says, number one, everything comes from him. Everything. Now, if you translate that word everything from the Greek, from the Greek language into the English language, what everything there means actually is everything. So... It means everything. Everything comes from God. And that's an important place to begin your Christian life from because if you believe that there are leakage and ways that things get into your life that have nothing to do with God and He has no control, you're essentially taking on responsibility to fix and address things that are out way above your pay grade. You're, you're a minor leaguer trying to step into, the, into the, uh, the batting box of the major leagues, and you're just going to find yourself overwhelmed by what you confront. The simple reality is if I'm going to have any peace with God, I have to begin with this premise. God controls everything. Everything comes from Him. That absolute sovereignty of God. That secondly, everything exists by His power. That He's the one who holds things together. And if something breaks apart 
then it's because God has decided that that's the way it should be. Because too often we hang on to something that God wants us to let go of. I love Corey Ten Boom's testimony in, in her book, uh, uh, Tramp for the Lord, when she survived the, 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 the Nazi Holocaust. And here she comes out of imprisonment, and everything her family owned had been given to Nazi sympathizers. So they went from a prosperous family to having nothing. She's literally, as she said, a tramp on the street. And she said, I learned through all of that to hold very loosely to the things of this world because I never knew when God would require them of me. And she lived the rest of her life without any kind of certainty, and yet she was well taken care of all of her days because she left her destiny in God's hands out of necessity initially and out of a choice of faith. But it's the idea that everything exists by His power so that if God wants me to have something, He has the power to make it happen. And if God doesn't want me to have something, He has the power to close that door as well. And that's why Solomon says, don't labor to get rich. If that's God's plan for your life, it'll fall in your lap easier than you can ever realize. But it's when you strive to make something happen, you're essentially deifying your own self and taking on God's authority into your life. But thirdly, he says that everything is intended for His glory, that everything comes from God, everything exists by His power, and everything is intended for His glory. So that even when I talk about handling of something as mundane and as, if you're in your mind, maybe even as profane as Monday, God wants it to be done in a way that brings glory to Him. And that doesn't mean that it always has to be an offering or in the bucket. But it's meant in a way that fulfills what it was purposed by God to do. I love the way Max Lucado summarized it. He put this, he says, The breath you just breathed, God gave you that. The blood that just pulsed through your heart, credit God. The light by which you read and the brain with which you process, He gave both. Everything comes from Him. We exist to exhibit God, to display His glory. We serve as canvases for His brush stroke, papers for His pen, soil for His seeds, glimpses of His image. God ordained your life, and He ordained it so that you could live it in an orderly way, not a disorderly way. Now, granted, you cannot control the chaos that may come into your world, but you can control how you respond to the chaos. And if I believe that God is in control of everything, that He has all power, and that I exist to reflect those facts in the world around me, then how I respond to that chaos is quite different. And one of the things is that when we find ourselves in financial difficulties, if our first response is not to drop to our knees and ask God to help us, then we're probably setting ourselves up for a season of frustration until we do get there. You know, many of us have, you know, we're kind of the, our spiritual gift is a lot like uh, Chicken Little. The sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And, 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 and you run around like a chicken that just had his head chopped off. And let me tell you, I know a lot about decapitated chickens. 
I grew up in a home where we went out to the farm. My mom picked out the chickens. The farmer took them, and he'd have my brother and I stand on a stump, and he'd go over to another stump, and he'd pop the head off of that sucker and put it in the ground, and we'd stand there as it ran around us, spurting blood out of the hole and running around, and we thought this was great entertainment. I mean, this is before TV. So... You know, and then we, because after we got the pleasure of that experience, we, my brother and I had to clean, pluck and clean those creatures. But nonetheless, it's easy to live your life in that kind of panic and that kind of stress. And it, it affects us. We've already talked about how it affects you mentally and physically in all sorts of ways. The tension in the relationships that arise because of it. And he's simply saying what we need to learn is that God is the one who is the source of all this thing. God is the one who holds it up. That our life is like that burning bush that Moses encountered in the wilderness. And he saw this bush burning, and long after all the combustibles should have been consumed by the fire that was there, it's still burning, so he decides he's going to take a look at it. He walks up to it, and it's not just a burning bush, it's a talking bush. And that bush says to him, take your shoes off because where you're standing right now is holy ground. And suddenly he realized there's an angelic presence here <laughs> that's speaking for God on my behalf and I need to listen to what he has to say. And those kind of experiences are life-transforming experiences. When you realize that your personal finances, your family finances, your business finances, the, the dynamics of all those things in your life are oftentimes like that burning bush. How do you get from A to B and survive on what you make, and sometimes that in itself is the testimony that God is good, that God is good. I, I think in many times God delights in enabling His saints to live above and beyond their income, not because they're overspending, but because He multiplies what He's given them and just amazingly blesses them. So if that's the case, then why do people have financial problems? Well, there are at least four reasons that I could identify with. I, um, I think they're ones that have covered, touched my life, at least. Maybe that's why I know them. The first one is simply that there's injustice in the world. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but if you're over 12 years of age, you've come to realize that life is unfair. I mean, Solomon said that in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. He, he very clearly says, The race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, uh, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happens to them all. Solomon's observation is really a quite simple one. He says, If you look at humanity, you realize that the best do not always get what they deserve. I remember doing marriage counseling with a, 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 a rock rock and roll guy. I won't mention his name, but it was really interesting because how I got cooked up with this guy, but I'm doing marriage counseling for him and his wife, and I made the comment offhandedly. I said, you know, uh, not, the greatest musicians don't always make it in the music world, and his wife said, that's absolutely true, and her husband kind of went, well, yeah, I guess you're right, but it's a, if there, there's an inherent unfairness to what goes on. There's just an unfairness out there that not everybody gets what they deserve. Not everybody who works the hardest gets the promotion. Not everybody who's the most skilled gets the best paying job. Not everyone has the same opportunity. I mean, when you start going down through the list and you say, what's the genius behind a, a, a Bill Gates or a, a Steve Jobs or stuff like that? Part of the reality is, if you really look at their life, they often found themselves in what we call the right place at the right time. And that becomes, at the end of the day, the, the things that reinforce the idea that life is not fair. 
And so some people are in circumstances where they are blessed financially and others are not. We even know that you can live in different regions of the country and it will affect you different financially. But there also is what we call outright injustice. Where Solomon complained, he said in chapter 13, that a poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. In other words, there are places around the world where people are held captive by systems that will never allow them to progress. I've seen it so often in places like India or China or other places where the system militates against them. And the poor are kept in poverty. They're kept enslaved in their poverty so that they can continue to be enslaved. In fact, one of our guys right now is just heading over to Pakistan. Somebody else in our church bought a, paid for a well so that people who are held in financial slavery making bricks can at least have clean water while they pay off their debt, which is designed to keep them perpetually in debt so they never pay it off. I've seen it with the tea plantations in India, where people are simply, they work and work, and everything they earn goes to buy food and housing, which belongs to the owners, and it's all gone, so at the end of the day, they have to go back out into the fields again, and they never get ahead, because if they make more money, they just raise the price. And there's that kind of economic injustice in the world that grows out of what I think is the second reason people have financial problems, and that's covetousness. That love that Paul talked about again in chapter 6 and verse 10, that, that aggressive love and affection for money, not only does it, as he says, produce in the, the person themselves evil, it leads people to do evil things, it leads people to cheat, to lie, and to steal, and to be unfair, and to trim the corners and shave the edges and take advantage, to put their thumb on the scale so it's not quite accurate, all of those things that create come out of the same idea, the belief that somehow if I can just eke out a little bit more, it'll make me more happy. But even that, he goes on to say, it, it may, leads people to make decisions that ultimately will pierce them through with many griefs and many sorrows. It's interesting that a uh, man like uh, John D. Rockefeller, founder of, of Standard Oil and one of the wealthiest men of the 19th century. Uh, his father, you know, taught him how to be financially shrewd by engaging him in interactions, and then his dad would cheat him, chisel him, fool him to get his money away from him. And he said, what it did is it taught me how to be shrewd about money. So he was incredibly shrewd, and he spent his entire life in the pursuit of it until at the age of 50, they already had written his obituary because his health was so bad. He was eaten up, and all he could, with all of his millions, the only thing he could eat was warm toast and milk because nothing else would digest. And what happened? Somebody came to him and said, you know, the Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And he set up the Rockefeller Foundation and started giving away money because he wasn't going to live long enough to get it. And suddenly, as he began to give away his money, his health began to improve. And he lived to be 96. You see, there, there's something that, about that, that covetousness that it, it does kind of golemize you. You know, that was the whole thing that Tolkien was trying to illustrate, that how that greed turned an ordinary hobbit into golem. A very unattractive, slimy character that eats raw fish, which my doctor tells me I should do. But anyway, 
But the whole point is that covetousness is this horrible thing. In fact, Paul said to the Colossians, greed, which is idolatry. Or again, in Ephesians 5, he says, for this you can be sure, no immoral or impure or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That the love of money turns us into, in God's eyes, simple idolatries. We are worshiping an inanimate object as if it has the power to give life and to make happy and to please us. When researchers have asked people how much more money they need in order for their lives to be improved and to, to be happy, uh, you know what the answer was? <laughs> 10% more than I'm making right now. You know what the Bible says? If you really want to be happy and blessed, give 10% back. <laughs> you don't need 10% more. You need actually 10% less so that God can do more with the 10% less than you could ever do with the 10% more. You see, because Solomon found something actually the opposite to be true in Ecclesiastes 5 because he says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. So I, I don't know what it is. Maybe that's why Donald Trump only sleeps three hours a day. But the bottom line is, the more you have out there, the more you have to worry about how you're going to keep and expend and do what you do with what you have. It doesn't make it easier to sleep at night. And many of you know this. God's blessed us, you're prosperous, you work hard, and you realize that oftentimes that comes to the price of early mornings and late nights just because of the responsibilities. But the idea that people saying, oh, if I just had enough money, it'd make my life so much easier. That's just a fantasy. It's not anything based upon reality. What the Bible offers actually is a contrast to that. It says that instead of covetousness, really the answer to life is being content with what you have. The covetous man says, I just need a little more. The Bible says, no, be content with what you have right now. Live within the parameters of what you have right now. I mean, I found even with a church that there's a simple budgetary principle. You don't spend more money than you have. And let me be honest, I want you to give much more money than you do. Am I supposed to admit that? I want you to blow my mind with your abundance of giving, but we're not going to live beyond what we do receive. What do we do? We live on a budget. We trim it to what we have. And that becomes just a simple promise of life. You, you, because at the end of the day, when I look at those numbers every month, I say, that's what God has given us. Because otherwise, what happens to people like me is we think we work for you, that we're employees. You don't pay my salary, God does. And that's the whole point. We, we get, it's just such subtle little things that twist the way we look at the same thing that we become different people. We begin to be motivated by a different drive that suddenly I feel this necessity to do a 12-week ser series on how much you should be giving. We create novel theologies that say, if you'll just give me more, God will give back to you. As I was watching the guy on the TV, he said, this is the year of the thousand percent blessing. If you give to this ministry, God will pay you back a thousand percent. I wanted to call him up and say, hey, does that work both ways? How about you give me a thousand dollars and you get the thousand percent blessing? Aren't you going to even have more money? No, he didn't seem to be open to that, but anyway doesn't seem to work that direction. 
But again, this issue of contentment is reiterated over and over again. Jesus is the one who said, be content with your pay. And he said again in Luke 12, he says, be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. He writes to Timothy, he says, but if I have food and clothing, be content with that. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And it's interesting when you think about it because God is your, well, you're his wingman. <laughs> He's got a much bigger credit card than you have. He says, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm going to cover your bases. But there's a third thing I see as well. And in this age of, of entitlement, as we might call it, there are a lot of people who are just slothful. Um, somebody's told them that there's a free lunch out there someplace, and they spend their life literally, literally going around the community trying to find the place that has the free lunch. But in Proverbs 14, 23, here's the fact of life. All hard work brings a profit. But mere talk leads only to poverty. In verse 19, chapter 19, he says, One who is slack in his work is the brother to one who destroys. In verse 21, he says, The plan of the diligence lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So that there's just simple principle in life that man shall live the Lord told Adam and Eve, by the sweat of his brow. And anybody who tells you that you can, you can get ahead in life without having to do hard work it will lie to you about lots of stuff because it's simply not true. But I think what I find most people struggle with, and this is the fourth thing, is, is just ignorance. They, they're ignorant. They, nobody has ever taught them about these things. And that's why I think that when it comes to the issue of money, we need to begin with a, with a thoroughly biblical perspective. And the first thing I find in that is simply this, that God doesn't necessarily want you to be rich, nor does He necessarily want you to be poor. He probably wants you to prosper. And I say that because John offers this opening comment in his prayer in, in 3 John 2. He says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper. The word prosper there in the original actually has a financial equivalent to it. It's essentially meaning that you be successful in your enterprises, your businesses, your job. God, I, I pray that God would bless and give you increase financially and to be in good health just as your soul prospers. I mean, those to me are the trinity of a happy life, financially stable, healthy, and growing in Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are things he said, I'm praying these things for you. That's why in Proverbs 3, 1, he, even Solomon says, my son, do not forget he said, keep my commands in your heart for they will prolong your life and bring you prosperity. And then he adds further on, honor the Lord with your wealth. So these things are all integrated together. So the first thing I think we need to understand biblically is God doesn't promise you to be rich as some people say, but he isn't necessarily planning for you to be poor. That secondly, God wants you to be responsible with what he's given you. 
In Luke 16, 1, Jesus said, If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? He's talking about spiritual riches. And that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 2, Now it is required for that those who have been given a trust must prove themselves faithful. So God wants us to be faithful with what He has given to us. But thirdly, God wants you to care for your own. And I doubt I have to say this to this group, but Paul points it out to the Thessalonians as if a man will not work, he shall not eat. And again to Timothy, he says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That part of that responsibility is that I have an obligation to provide for my family. And then lastly, God's will and will enable you if you're willing. My pastor used to say that God's callings are His enablings. That if God commands you to do something, He's going to give you the ability to fulfill it. I love the way He, he comes to Israel in the book of Malachi, and they had been forsaking their financial responsibilities to the Lord and to the priests. And God just comes back to me and says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. An amazing statement. God's saying, test me. It's the only time in the Bible God ever says, invites us to test him. But one time he says, test me. See if I won't blow your mind by what I will do. But that's the whole point. More to my point is that you need to understand that God is looking for a willing heart. That if he commands you to do something, that you do it. And, and when you're obedient to it, he will bless you in the ways that he wants to bless you. And I'm not saying always financially or materially, but God has a way of moving in ways that, I mean, I could sit here for hours talking about the amazing things I've seen God do through the years. But really, all of this requires the same thing. All of it requires that you have a basic budget in place. And uh, the principle behind a budget is pretty simple. We read it in the opening passage. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? I mean, hopefully, you know, the bank would never allow you to build a house unless you could tell him how much it's going to cost you to build it. I mean, that's the way it works with all sorts of things. And he's saying, Jesus is applying it to, in terms, in the first context, in terms of are, are we willing to invest ourselves in the kingdom of God? I mean, unless we're willing to see the cost of following Jesus, the cost of discipleship, then we can't follow him. He says, basically, simply because you'll never make it. You'll turn away when things become difficult. But the same principle applies on a lower level, which is basically, don't we need to figure out what it costs? One great saying I heard one time, it says, if your outflow ex exceeds your inflow, then your upkeep will be your downfall. <laughs> I mean, that's just simply a truth of life. You know, there's, it's, it's recognizing I can only take so many in, much in and I can only allow so much to go out. It really is that simple. You want to build a, a tower of economic stability for yourself and for your family? You have to know how much money you're making, how much money's coming in. You have to know how much is going out. You have to have a, an income and expenses sheet. And it doesn't have to be really complicated, and I don't have the time to talk to you about it. But what I will tell you is we have a, something we offer to you free of charge. 
It's our subscription as a church to Right Now Media. And Right Now Media, if you sign up for it, and we probably have to help you figure out how to sign up exactly for it, but if you sign up for it, you get all these thousands and thousands of Christian videos, some of the best Bible teachers in the world. I mean, you can just sit there on the TV and not even bother coming here anymore. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, I, that won't hurt my feeling as long as you continue to send money. But uh, <laughs> should I be that honest? <laughs> I told the guys, I'll just sit home with, with, a, with Skype and in my pajamas and I'll just coffee and I'll talk to you over the video. Do, do on screen. We do virtual reality, but seeing me in reality is too scary. <laughs> but, but basically, I just went on there. It's not 352 different studies on financial management. Very practical things. Things from Dave Ramsey and Larry Burkett and Ron Blue and these guys who their entire ministries are based upon Crown Financial and so forth. Just helping people to get their financial world. You don't have to schedule an appointment. You don't have to come to a seminar. You can just turn on your TV free of charge. It's not costing you anything and just sit there and go through these series and you'll get all the basics, all the insight you need on how to set up my family finances in a way that God is able to bless them. Uh, my son and I were having this conversation the other night. It was an interesting thing. He said, you know, it's really about just positioning yourself so that God is able to bless you. And what disobedience and lack of discipline does in our life is it gets us out of position so that we can't sit under the fount where the glory comes out, as the old gospel song went. It's that premise. I remember my pastor used to say this. You have to believe that God yearns to bless you. That's the heart of God. He wants to, and the whole key is to bring myself into the kind of disciplines that allow that to happen. I mean, it's true. Some of you will quote to me. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 26, the poor you will always have with you. And he also added, and you should do whatever you can to help them, implying to his disciples that they weren't part of the poor. <laughs> they should use what they have. Paul gives that same commandment to the rich. He said to be generous and to help those who are poor. But it doesn't automatically mean that you have to become one of the poor. When David says in Psalm 37, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about your life. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things, they'll be given to you. All these things. Again, does God ever call people to a life of poverty? Undoubtedly, there are people who are called by God to live lives of poverty. And that's such a relative term. One man's poverty is another man's riches. Another man's riches is another man's poverty. But there are many, many, many who live in poverty because they simply don't know better. As, as Hosea said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And so the simple fact is that you need to educate and inform yourself on how God wants you to manage your resources and be obedient to Him. And that puts you in that place. Obedience always puts you in that place where God can bless. And I have much more to say about that, but I won't. Let's pray. 
Father God, I pray that you would uh, help us uh, sort through this stuff. It's not my favorite topic, um, but God, it's an important one, I believe. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to, to just to man up and woman up to the issues in our own life, our own home, our own families. I pray that you'd help husbands and wives to begin to have honest conversations with each other. I pray you'd help us all individually to just open our hearts and say, Lord, is there idolatrousness going on in my life? Do I trust in uncertain riches, even if I don't have any, but believe that somehow they're the answer to what aches in my life? Lord, help us, deliver us from those temptations. We all struggle with that. Deliver us from that temptation. Deliver us from those vain speculations. If I won the lottery, what would I do? Remind us that we would probably ruin our lives and that of our loved ones. I pray, Father, that you would just help us to discover what that means to be content with what you've given us and to look to you to give the increase or to accept when you give the decrease. That whether you're calling us to a life of upward mobility or a life of downward mobility, that all things come from you. And as long as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, we're going to end up exactly where you want us to be. And we'll praise you, Lord, either way. We pray for that grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue in our worship time together, for those of you who are unaware, we just continue on a little time of reflection, repose, response to God. And the response is really to God, not to me or anybody else. We're not asking you to sing something, say something, sign something, or anything of that nature. But we've just learned through the years that when God has spoken to us, it's so easy to rush out the door and forget about it. We become hearers, but we never really give it a chance to really settle into our our heart and become part of our lives. And that's really what we're trying to do. And so I invite you to hang on for a few more minutes as we just ask God to help us to sift through all of the stuff because I said a whole bunch of stuff. But to what, did, what did God say to you? What was that one thing that God touched your heart with and is calling you to just simply humbly come before him? Maybe it's a repentance. Uh, maybe it's a, a praise. But it's so important that when we have the opportunities to respond to God that we actually do. We invite you to come up and partake of the elements of communion. This is here every week. And it's really just one of those rituals that God says is part of the sacrament of the Christian life. That we remember that all of this is happening and everything in our life, even our eternal salvation is ultimately the result of his body that was, was given, his blood that was poured out for the remission of our sins. And that if we profess that we are followers of Jesus, that that's the role model, that's the pattern. That I present my body as a living sacrifice and Lord, here's my life. As best I can, Lord, I just give you my life. And if that means that you want me to lay my life down, then your will be done. Let me tell you this. You're heroic because one day you're going to lay down your life. Whether you want to or not, one day you're going to lay down your life. And the Christian is living for that moment because that's the moment of, of glory. That's the moment of reward. That's the moment of completion and healing and restoration. 
That's the moment we live for, the day when we are with him and the battles here are over. But in the interim, he wants us to live our lives as people who are heading for that destination, not for one who are looking for the answer right here and now. I pray that God will give you insight to that and the grace to embrace that in Jesus' name.